It's the job of every leader to give feedback. In this episode, what to say, what to avoid, and the framework to follow to help everybody move forward. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 583. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One conversation that leaders and managers need to have regularly is the conversation where you give feedback. It's something that most of us know is an important part of our roles, and yet feedback conversations are often one of the conversations we find most difficult, we struggle with, we want to honor the other person and to be concise and give good, effective feedback, and yet often we don't know where to start. Today, I'm so glad to welcome back to the show a successful manager and executive who's going to help us to really look at some good practices for giving feedback well and doing it in a way that really honors the other person as a human being too. I'm glad to welcome back to the show Russ Lairway. He has had a diverse 28-year operational management career. He was a company commander in the Marine Corps before starting his first company, Pathfinders. From there, Russ went on to the Wharton School and then management roles at Google and Twitter. And he co-founded Candor Inc. along with best-selling author and past guest Kim Scott. Over the last several years, Russ served as the chief people officer at Qualtrics and now the chief people officer for the fast-growing venture capital firm Goodwater Capital, where he is helping Goodwater and its portfolio of companies to empower their people to do great work and be totally psyched while doing it. Over his career, Russ has managed 700-person teams and $700 million businesses facing a vast array of leadership challenges along the way. He's the author of the book, When They Win, You Win. Being a great manager is simpler than you think. Russ, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me back, Dave. It is so good to be back on Coaching for Leaders. I am thrilled to see this book emerge. We talked last four years ago on the show about career conversations, and we talked about, like, wouldn't it be great if this was a book someday? And now it is. And it's not just career conversations. It is a great primer for managers of really many of the core skill sets that are necessary for managers today. And and that's actually a good lead into one of the cases you make in the book is that for a lot of managers in a lot of places, they still find themselves failing in a lot of ways, don't they? You, you, I know you run into this all the time. Yeah, I, I have this idea that if we were to, you know, I, I think managers are failing actually systematically. And I defend this idea pretty strongly. And I, I think a lot of us feel that in our day to day. I mean, even, you know, you mentioned in my bio, 28 years of operational management, and I could still easily point you to uh, several leadership mistakes I, I would have made like last week. And so we're always learning. But I think in, at scale globally, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest managers are actually failing systematically. And I, and I say that despite in the last, whatever, 10 years, there's been a mountain of, well, podcasts, books like mine, podcasts like yours, articles aimed at trying to make managers better. And so I started to think, well, why on earth would manager, I actually think managers are getting worse in that context, not better. And and I I thought, what if I were to go get a bunch of well-known authors, let's say, and I could sit them down and ask them how they believe their stuff 
contributes to helping make managers better. And I think they might say something like, you know, the average manager is going through, let's say, an a la carte lunch line. And they go by the, you know, section where maybe one author's stuff is and they pull something off the lunch line. Then they go to the next author and they pull something off. Then they go to the next podcast host and they pull something off. And off they go and they have a little leadership toolkit on their tray and they walk away and they're prepared to go solve their leadership problems. I think for the average manager, though, it doesn't feel like an orderly trip through an a la carte or buffet style lunch line. I think mm. it feels like they're hogtied in the center of a middle school cafeteria while multi-thousand person food fight is transpiring. And so, you know, b- broccoli bouncing off their head and mashed potatoes <laughs> sliding down their cheek because there's just too much stuff out there. It's mostly opinion and it doesn't all hang together. And by the way, even if, if a manager goes through that lunch line, they're usually not going to pick the spinach and chicken breast and salad that they need, they're more likely to pick the cream puff and the Kentucky fried steak or whatever, or, you know, Southern fried steak, you know, that they want. And they, they walk away maybe with not necessarily the skills they require. So anyway, all that together, I had this realization. I don't think the world needs another person's opinion about what it means to be a great manager. I think we need to learn to lead in a way that measurably and predictably delivers more engaged employees and better business results. And ultimately, that's the book that I wrote. I'm thinking about the chicken and the uh, spinach that we know we really should be eating, but we don't tend to go for first. And what a, what an interesting analogy it is for feedback. Uh, you know, the spinach <laughs> that we know is important. Ask anyone in any organization who's ever been led by a manager and the importance and the desire to get good actionable, caring feedback from someone. And yet, so many of us struggle with giving feedback well to others. And you write in the book, uh, you know, some of the things that go wrong with folks giving feedback. And one of the things you write is, I've seen people, I'm quoting you now, uh, I've seen people often unconsciously spend so much time talking about the impending conversation that they don't leave themselves enough time to actually have the conversation. I've seen this show up a bunch too. What's challenging about that of, of front-loading too much with other things? Yeah. So it's obviously sort of a natural delay tactic. And I tell a story about a Paralympic swimmer and she had not been a Paralympic athlete her whole life. She, her name is Mallory Wegman and she lost the use of her legs because of uh, epidural uh, through an operation she got. And she quickly got off the couch, stopped feeling sorry for herself and got in the pool and unbelievably quickly became the top Paralympic swimmer in the world very quickly. Wow. And she, the last global games before the Paralympics in, I think 2012, she won, uh, she got gold medal in every single event. And so she was going to go to the Paralympics in two years and she was going to win everything. And so when she arrived at those Olympics, she was classified as a, as an S seven. And so it turns out that paralyzation or other physical impairments, they always exist on a continuum. It's, it's never, it's never binary. You are either paralyzed or you're not. And uh, she was classified as an S seven on this continuum. When she showed up to those games, they classified her as an S eight with no warning. And that's a harder division. In fact, what everyone in S8 had in common was they had the use of their legs. And I've seen Mallory give her talk, and it is extremely obvious when you watch her speak, she does not have the use of her legs. Hmm. And so she was ready to throw in the towel. She was um, you know, really disappointed 
And her coach said, let's go through the process here. We're going to, you know, we're going to appeal. And he went out to try to get an appeal. And here's, here's kind of the, 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 the point here. He comes back and he says, Hey, you got a sec. And the way she tells the story to me is brilliant. She says, you know how, when someone has good news, they're upbeat, maybe they're snapping their fingers a little bit. They got yeah. a big smile on their face. Their tone of voice is obvious. They have good news. She said, there was none of that. And I knew immediately that our appeal had not been successful and that I was going to have to swim as an S8. Before he even said a word, I'm Before sure. Before he said one single word, correct. And I thought about that in this context, this nonstop preamble that we did. We, we talk so much about the feedback that we often sometimes fail to actually give it. And it's a really bad habit. And so the worst part about it is the person sitting across from you, you are likely giving off all kinds of signals that this is not about to be a fun conversation. And so why don't we just get into it? And anyway, that's how we're going to help this person get better faster uh, besides. So why don't we just get into it? So yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where this comes from. Seems pretty normal to me. I don't mean to suggest that this is some sort of, you know, it's, it's a pretty normal defense mechanism because we all don't love having the hard conversation. Oh yeah. I know that I've done it many times, especially earlier in my career of, um, I don't, I wouldn't have called it a delay tactic at the time I was doing it, but looking back, it absolutely was. And speaking of delay tactics, one of the and you called this out in the book, one of the delay tactics I think we unconsciously tend to do as managers when we're giving feedback is we come in with a question like, how do you think How do you think things went in that team meeting or in that last interaction? And we start there to get the other person's perspective first. And I think like both of us are on the same page that that's a mistake. What's, what's wrong about starting with that? So I think that when there's a genuine question there. It's true curiosity. I think it's fine to kick off a conversation that way, of course. You know, you can imagine a scenario in which someone might be attempting to do coaching through a Socratic method, mm. um, helping a person self-discover. And I, I think, you know, many of us have had the experience where that can be very powerful. I don't think that's what we're talking about in most cases. In most yeah. cases, I think what the manager or the feedback giver or the, co- the person trying to give some coaching is trying to do is they're hoping beyond hope that the employee will self-diagnose, say exactly what the, ma- the manager or the coach wants to say, and it'll be such an easy conversation. I think the worst part about this is that the employee or the person receiving the coaching kind of knows we're not talking about a genuine curiosity question when we start down this path. And my prescription is just say what you think, manager. And trust me, I quite explicitly say at the end of you conveying what you think is going on, coach or manager, it is critically important then to gather the employee's perspective and to really want to understand it. So I don't think these conversations should not feature the employee's perspective. I think this basic practice of trying to start out with hoping they'll do the self-discovery when you just can't wait to say what you're really thinking, I just think it's so inauthentic. And we we can just kind of push the employee's perspective back toward the back of the conversation. And now they know what you're thinking. And now we can have a real exchange. We can have a real conversation. So like the practice of asking, 
don't like the practice of putting it up front because of some, yeah, as you said, because it's a delay or because we think it'll sort of soften the conversation or, or some sort of social lubrication. Yeah. And that's one of the things I want to hit on too, because um, there's a, dis- there's, it's a part of the conversation, but part of this is the order of like, let's get into what we're really talking about and then bring in that perspective afterwards. And I'll, I'll ask you about that in a bit. You have this line in the book that I highlighted more than anything else. And it's the line you use to kick off a conversation like this. Two sentences. You, you write, I think I'm seeing some behavior that I believe is getting in your way. Are you in a spot where you can hear that right now? And I read that and I thought, wow, that is really brilliant as an entry point. Tell me a bit about the psychology behind phrasing it that way. Yeah, there's another one that is similar, which is I have some, you know, maybe I have some coaching for you. It might be hard for you to hear. It's certainly difficult for me to say, are you in a spot where you can hear that right now? Hmm. So a couple different versions, actually quite similar. And the the idea is, is actually fairly simple. First of all, I want to avoid excessive preamble that you and I just discussed doesn't work. There might be, I mean... I'm not a robot, right? There might be a little small talk. Maybe we're getting settled in our chairs. You know, maybe we're going for a walk. I don't, I don't want the, your listeners to misunderstand, but when it's time to get in the conversation, I just kind of want to get into it. Yeah. And I think we spare the employee a lot of angst, a lot of hand wringing, because again, the Mallory Wegman story, they know what's coming. They can tell you, you, you think maybe you're masking it, but I promise you they can tell. And so let's just get right into it. That's number one. Number two is it is a genuine option for them to opt out because what if they just had a terrible morning? Maybe um, it was a, a single parent who had the hardest time getting their kids ready for school. One of the kids missed the bus. Another kid was sick. And this person bring, is bringing all that into the office. It's trailing right behind them like a shadow. And they might just not be in a spot in that moment where they can hear a tough conversation. So what I've just done is flag with utmost clarity, we got to talk about some ways we can be better. And you have the option to bow out of that right now. Now, what's important is that we don't just allow that conversation never to happen. You know, if the person says, well, actually, now's not really a good time. Then the next question is, well, when is, you know, what about tomorrow morning? Because I really want to make sure we have this conversation sooner rather than later, et cetera. And then kind of off we go. So, I think, I think we achieve just a few things. We flag, hey, got a hard conversation coming. We cut out a lot of that wasteful, uh, disingenuous at times preamble. And we legitimately, genuinely give the employee a chance to opt in or opt out to the conversation in that moment. When you get into the conversation, there's a three-step framework. Uh, you've taken some inspiration from CCL, the Center for Creative Leadership. Uh, I'm a fan like you. And, and you've tweaked it a little bit. Uh, the three steps that when you actually then have that conversation are really helpful in order to frame the what's we're talking about and the impact. Could you walk us through what that sounds like when you are walking through those three steps? Yeah. So you're you're talking about situation behavior impact from the Center for Creative Leadership. And yeah. I'll, I'll kind of just come back to that in just a moment. If I can back up a, just a bit. Sure. What we're coaching people on, in, in my opinion, is only two things ever a work product and behaviors. We're all at a company or any organization. I don't care if it's a, I don't care if it's a government or a church um, or a nonprofit or an educational institution and on and on. Our job 
is to deliver an aligned result. In fact, the most basic job description I can come up with for a manager is one, deliver an aligned result, and two, enable the success of the people on your team, okay? And so the best, most pervasive, cheapest tool you have to enable success of people on your team is coaching. Mm -hmm. And so here you and I are talking about that. But sliding back just a bit, if you think about what results are, results are a function of the work products you produce, a spreadsheet analysis, marketing copy, uh, code if you're a computer scientist, you know, the customer service ticket, um, the meeting that you drove as a sales rep. That Those are the work products that we deliver that lead to results. The behaviors, you know, we also care about, we care about not only what we get done, the work products, we also usually care about how we get it done, right? The behaviors. And there's right. lots of sources for behavioral stuff, right? There's your respectful workplace policy. There's your core values as a company, et cetera. Lots of companies have these. So, Center for Creative Leadership's around like a hundred years, thousands of customers, SBI, situation behavior impact. You know, I came along like last Thursday. I'm like, oh, we also have to have situation work impact. You know, it's just <laughs> as good, just as good. Yeah. And so basically the situation is that it's the situation or the context or the problem. You know, we can use that, that term a little bit liberally. Uh, the behavior is a specific behavioral issue that you believe you're seeing, or in the case of a work product, specific work quality that you believe you're seeing. And then the impact of each. So the impact of the behavior manifesting the impact of the work quality. So what this might sound like in the case of improve coaching in one case and continue coaching in the other. So the situation is Jane in our team meeting right away, all the context, we know exactly what we're talking about is, is right there. I noticed you were pretty defensive toward Tony when he questioned your analysis. That's the behavior, the impact. When any team member is defensive, it makes it hard for us to live up to the team value, which is to lift each other up by helping make everyone's work great. You know, I just invented that, hmm. that team value. So that's, that's what it sounds like in the case where Jane maybe needs to improve. There's another massive kind of coaching that I actually think is more important than improvement coaching, which is continue coaching. I believe we should be giving this coaching at a rate of five to one over improvement coaching. But here's what this might sound like. Jane, in our team meeting situation... I really appreciated the way you leaned in and guided Tony towards specific ways he could improve his analysis. That's the behavior. I think this kind of behavior not only helps us live up to our team value to lift each other up by helping make everyone's work great, but I also think it builds trust among team members. So thank you. It's the same framework either way. Exact same framework. And by the way, if we're talking about a work product, I won't do the examples exactly the same again. So instead of a behavioral uh, topic, now we're talking about a specific, the quality of work in some case. And we can do the exact same thing, both continue and improve. And so you, you sort of have the preamble. I have something that might be difficult to hear, hard for me to say. And then we can get right into situation behavior impact. And, and we will have, we will start it. No, no silver bullets here, Dave. Still, the conversation will likely be uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. You know, but it helps to make sure that we're um, really, really clear about what we're coaching on. Yeah. And it gives you a framework to make sure you're actually having the conversation. I've, I'm sure you've seen this a bunch too. I've, uh, had a whole bunch of times over the years where I've observed someone else giving feedback and they never actually gave the feedback. And, but, and then we'll have a conversation about it afterwards. Like, Oh yeah, I gave them feedback. And I'm thinking like, no, <laughs> like yeah. it didn't actually show up in the conversation, but they really genuinely believe that they did, but they spent so much time in that, that preamble and kind of like talking around it but the three steps is really, it's a lot less likely you're going to gloss over the thing you really need to say. Yeah, it's true. And by the way, I've had the same experience. I, I, um, 
I would, I would coach when I was at Twitter, especially, I remember I would coach a lot of our junior managers. I'd, I'd hold office hours and we'd kind of scoot away, you know, and it just, this is where I started to realize, oh, this is really what, what my passion is. And one of the managers, Justin was having an issue with one of the people on his team and they weren't performing. And I, I asked Justin, I said, well, tell me kind of what, what you said. And, you know, and he recounted and I, I, I realized over time I needed to say, Justin, I want to hear exactly what you, because sometimes people do, they'll do like the sidebar, they'll go out of character and they're implying that they said the things that they're saying to you now that are out of character, but they never really said them. Yeah. Or did, you know, or this question, did you talk to the employee? And they're like, and there's some version of, oh, believe me, we've had this conversation. And then I go talk to the employee and there's no evidence, (laughs) you know, that the conversation ever happened. And it's just, you know, Dick Costlow from Twitter, this old CEO of Twitter used to say, the more difficult the message, the less clear you become. Mm. And I think if you just remember that rule that you are primed when you have to deliver a difficult message, you are primed to be very unclear. And the amount of work required to turn that around and to be very clear so that you and the employee both have the same experience you know, about whether the feedback was given, I think is, is a really important thing to be conscious about as you go into these tough conversations. There's a distinction here that you alluded to earlier between your truth and the truth. And one of the things you mentioned earlier is the importance of getting their input in the conversation. It's just not doing that up front. So you really point out in the book and that once you've said what you need to say in this model, then making the invitation to ask people to share their thoughts, you know, what are your thoughts on this, is actually really helpful. Tell me about that and and how, and why that's important from a standpoint of like finding truth here. Yeah, so I have this core philosophical belief that truth doesn't exist. It and in you know I kind of outline in the book a number of cases in physics where truth doesn't exist. I, I, I mean, for example, most physicists considered embarrassing that there are two competing overarching theories of physics. Right, string theory is is the newer version, and you know of course Newton's overall theory of physics. And there's been an attempt by physicists to unify them and they can't. And so if you're going to tell me that the physical rules of the universe don't even have a lot of facts and truth available to us, you're never going to convince me that some scenario in like a social experiment, like at work, uh, you're never going to convince me that truth exists in that scenario. And Mm. so what we should get our heads around is a simpler idea, which is that each person, the manager or the coach in this case, and the employee, you know, coaching receiver, coaching giver, each person has a valid perspective, right? A valid, valuable perspective. Neither person possesses the truth. And, you know, in the book, I, I have a pretty useful metaphor of two people sitting on either side of a sphere, and you're trying to describe your part of the sphere to the other person. And the mistake that people make is they believe that they understand what the other person's side of the sphere looks like. And they almost never do. Yeah. And and so ultimately, Dave, we, we, we don't do this disingenuous, you know, Socratic sounding question at the beginning of the conversation. But once we've laid out our perspective, SBI, SWI style, our employee now has something to react to. Our employee, this is actually, I think, more fair to the employee. They have... Uh, a firm understanding of my side of the sphere, our side of the sphere. And now my job as the person giving feedback 
is to try as hard as I can to understand my employees side of the sphere, what that looks like. And so, yeah, I think at the end of your feedback, I think it's crucially important to then ask the employee for their perspective, which will now help us to understand from both people's perspective, the true nature of the sphere. And by the way, the reason I use a sphere is because two people can never see all facets of a sphere. Mm. You know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that the two of us can't even touch on together, but at least we'll develop a much firmer understanding. We'll get closer to the truth. And again, I just have to caution that this question needs to be genuine. You need to go to the mats to try to understand where employee's head is. Your employee might see this thing 180 degrees from you and you have to be open and try to, and try to learn. And I think, you know, through the process of just listen to understand, don't push back, don't cross examine, don't argue, just try to listen to understand, you know, at the end of that conversation, the two of you are going to have a much firmer understanding of where you need to go right now for this employee to improve than you did if you just monologued at them, or if you just started out by asking a disingenuous, you know, Socratic sounding question. Uh, it's such a helpful analogy of, of thinking about it. And as you were saying that, I was, I was thinking back years ago, someone shared with me a model. I don't, I don't know if this comes from an author or an expert in the past, but of you know, four different ways of thinking about truth. There's the other person's truth. There's your truth. There's a, a shared truth that you may come to. And then there's the actual truth, <laughs> right? And the goal, I think, is in a lot of cases is like, how do we get those to be a little bit closer? Like, you know, in, in the situation of feedback, the manager obviously has a, a truth. The the employee has a truth. Like if we can get to a place where we've got a little bit better of a shared truth and a shared understanding uh, by seeing each person's perspective, by by inviting them to then give their perspective, like that's useful for us to then say, okay, now what do we do? Versus having the, emo- you know, having it just be an emotional conversation about how I feel, right? Yeah, that's, I, I love that. And the shared truth, I think is the I don't know. Maybe I'm a little cynical. The shared truth is the one that's ultimately available to us. The truth. I think we never quite get there. But I love. Yeah. But what you said is right. I, I, what you said is right. Let's get the four of those to be as close together as possible. Yeah, indeed. And then, and part of this, I'm, I'm hearing too, is we're taking out the. I mean, at some level, this is all just, you know, I, I don't know if opinion's the right word, but you know. I, th- I think most of the time, most of us and most people in the workplace come to a conversation like this, both intending well, you know, having a, a way that we look at it or we saw it and the other person has a way that they looked at it and saw it. And there's the tendency, I think, a lot of times from a manager to look at this as, uh, well, I'm right and the employee's wrong. And I, I think like the invitation you're making here to like look at this of like, hey, we both have a our own truth. Let's see where we can find alignment is a lot more useful because then you you get away from the well I'm right I, you're wrong this is how I feel about this this is a lot of opinion kind of things and we're approaching this more from a let's see if we can look at this in a little bit more dispassionate way of just curiosity and where are we starting from and then that gives us the opportunity to then enter into something that hopefully is useful of a what's next yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I think the only way to be certainly wrong is to be sure you're right. And mm. um, that's called ontological arrogance. And I think what, a, you know, maybe setting even feedback aside, one of the most toxic things that happens in a workplace 
is a desire to win, a desire to be right. You know, one of the things I would remind my teams of constantly is there are no enemies in the building. I'm fine if we want to call our competitor an enemy. I'm good with that. I'm a competitive person. And, you know, these businesses are all trying to win and we all want to win, but there are no enemies in the building. Even if that sales rep threw a terrible deal across the transom to the customer success team, that, that sales rep is not an enemy. We just got to give them a little feedback and help them be better. And so, yeah, you're, you're just, you're just not right. You know, oh, I'm, I'll go talk to them and get them on board is, is if, you know, that's, that's not remotely a good approach. I'll go talk to them, try to understand where they are and see if we can sort of align on a way we can move forward together. And so, yeah, you're that you nailed it. The manager shows up thinking they're right. That is the most certain way to be sure that you're wrong. And from a guy who does not believe that right and wrong even exists. Yeah, indeed. And what you just said there a moment ago too, like that kind of language, like I'm going to go get this person on board is the kind of thing we hear inside organizations all the time. And I think like we're so used to hearing stuff like that, that we often don't think about kind of the bigger message of what that's saying of I have truth and and I'm right as the manager. And I'm, and, and it may be, that you are more in a place of like where someone needs to go, right? And yet it's not starting from the place of like, okay, where do we find alignment on this and have some and and share feedback and then have a a conversation that really helps people move forward. Yeah. You know, my primary dream for humanity is that if 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 I could snap my fingers and change one thing that's realistic is that everyone would wake up tomorrow and understand that their truth is not the truth. I actually think the world would change for the better. Now that's can't happen. And so the best I can do is affect some managers through coaching for leaders and the book and all that, and hope that they can get their heads screwed on straight, that when they show up to a feedback conversation, that they are not in possession of the actual truth. This book is such a wonderful entry point for that. I mean, we are literally hitting on like four pages in the book, and there's so much here. Um, in fact, I shared with you offline before we started recording, Russ, I went back and forth so many times on how we would frame this conversation today because we literally have six or seven episodes we could do on the book. There's just so much that's really useful here, including the past conversation we've had on career conversations, which I'll, I'll mention in, at the end for those who want to go back into that it's such a useful framework. And I know that you're going to be doing a lot of speaking and training to really help folks to utilize this in practice. So for those who found this conversation helpful, I hope you'll go visit Russ's website and uh, check out the details on the book. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, starting point for some of the core management pieces. And and that leads me to my final question, Russ. Uh, you know, last time you were on, I, I may have asked you this too. Uh, experts, of course, are always learning, right? Speaking of truth, we're growing. Uh, sometimes we're changing our minds on things. As you've been writing this book over the last few years, your experience at Qualtrics, your experience as a manager and working with folks, I'm curious if anything's come up for you that you've changed your mind on in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I change my mind on everything all the time. You you have to do that if you're a person walking around talking about truth doesn't exist. I'll tell you, I don't know, maybe something, maybe something I learned along the way. So if I take you back, I think it's five years and a guy named Tim Bartlett, who's my editor for this book, I actually pitched him on a book that was really just career conversations. The, the episode you and I did four years ago. Yeah. And he told me, he told me go pound sand. I mean, he's way, way nicer than that. He's a great guy. Uh, and I didn't like it. I was like, no, you're wrong. It's a book. Uh, he said, okay, bye. 
Um, and then that was that, you know, once I sort of got over the hump and said, okay, let's think about this. I realized, you know what, he was probably right. And I realized that I really didn't think the world needed another person's opinion. I I just think there's plenty of that. And I didn't want to be another person just to toss another opinion, management opinion book on the pile. And so I thought the book project was probably dead. And then I had the opportunity, really kind of owe Qualtrics on this count, to, to have a sandbox where I could study the relationship between leadership, engagement, and results in a measurable way, right? All three of those things are measurable. And I realized that if I hadn't developed this evidence, I wouldn't have written the book um, because I just don't think we need more opinion on management. And so I think what I changed my mind about or what I learned maybe is a, is a better way to say it is, is that is that basic idea. I think what we need from more of the management literature and I mean that all up from articles to podcasts to books. I think we need more rigor around the idea of what actually works. I think that I think that whatever leadership standard someone is professing, quote unquote, works. I think we should expect that person to go on to say how it changes, how happy people are at work and how successful they are. And if they can't say that with, and I argue in rigorous terms, ideally measurable terms, then I think it's fair to question whether they're worth listening to for any length of time, anyhow. And so I, I think that's I think that's what I learned. I think that's what I changed my mind on is we we can do better by being more rigorous about saying what leadership practices or management practices actually work. Russ Laraway is the author of When They Win, You Win. Being a great manager is simpler than you think. Russ, thank you so much for your leadership and your work. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me again, Dave. This was great. Several related episodes to this conversation today with Russ. One of them I'd recommend that you listen to is episode 107, Three Steps to Soliciting Feedback. Tom Henschel was my guest on that episode, and we talked about the other side of this equation. When you are wanting to hear feedback from others, whether it is your employees, peers, management team, customers, and maybe you're not hearing very much feedback, what are the things that you can do in order to begin to generate that a bit more? In episode 107, Tom and I talk about three steps to do that well, if done consistently, so many things you can do there in order to start hearing more feedback that then becomes actionable for you. I'd also recommend episode 370. It's the last time Russ was on the show talking about the three steps to great career conversations. A whole bunch of this new book is built around the model of career conversations. It is one of the episodes that I have recommended more than any other over the last 11 years. Uh, It continues to come up in conversations with our members and listeners. If you're looking for a framework on how to have good, healthy, long-term conversations with the people you work with about what's next in their career. It is a skill almost none of us have learned how to do well, and it's essential for most leaders to know where folks are going in their organization as far as their long-term career goals. If you know that, you can do such a better job as a manager of being able to support people in getting there, and likewise, they will do a better job of staying loyal to the organization if they are and you are helping them to achieve their career milestones. Stones, episode 370 for that framework as well. Also recommended episode 464, how to balance care and accountability 
when leading remotely. Jonathan Raymond was my guest on that episode. We talked about his outstanding accountability dial. It goes right in line with giving feedback. If you are looking for a framework for how to provide accountability inside the organization, both positive and also constructive, episode 464 is a great place for that, a wonderful complement to this conversation. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 510, how to reduce bias in your feedback. Therese Houston was my guest on that episode, and uh, we looked at some of the very common points where Many of us have bias in how we think about feedback, what we say, how we say it. And especially in tough conversations, our biases tend to come out even more than they do in other places. Uh, Some windows into how to reduce that and to be thinking about it much more holistically. Episode 510 for Teresa's research and some practical steps on how to do better. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have your free membership set up, you can access the entire library searchable by topic. And one of the topic areas that this episode will be filed under is, of course, feedback. Many episodes, including the ones I've just mentioned, but many more over the years that we featured on feedback and how to get better at this core skill that's important to all of us. Plus, when you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you'll get access to the entire suite of resources inside of the website. One of those resources is something called Dave's Library. If you set up your membership and just click on Dave's Library, you're going to find an entire database of everything I've cataloged over the years on other episodes from other podcasts on the best articles I found in the business publications, uh, leadership development resources, TED Talks, you name it, it's in there. And I noticed I just passed over 2,000 links that I've databased there for you, accessible for free over the years. When you click on that, you'll see a place where you can search by hashtag. I've organized it, cataloged it, everything to make it easy for you. Whenever you're looking for an article on a topic uh, or a credibility piece, for a client. It's a wonderful place to begin. I've done a lot of the work for you. So set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com and you'll have access to that and so much else inside the free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Susan McEntee Brady on the show. And she's going to be with me to discuss the starting point for inclusive leadership. Join me for that conversation with Susan next week and I'll see you back on Monday.